On this episode of AvTalk, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency and the United Kingdom's Civil Aviation Authority clear the 737 MAX for flight. And Ian hatches a plan to save Norwegian Air by having the Norwegian government sell its shares in GameStop. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. And hello, Ian. How's it going? Hello, Jason. It's snowy here. Oh, or, or Chicago. It's supposed to be. Yeah, we haven't had a lot of snow lately, but now we finally got some snow. So I tossed the kids out into a snowbank and we're all having fun. Nice. You get free daycare for the day. Brought exactly. to you by a snowman. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. Put the snowman to work. But no, the snow meant I get to revel in the video footage of the snow clearance process at O'Hare, which is always fun because you've got 112 runways and 2,632 taxiways to clear. We'll have to check on those numbers, but it sounds right. No, that's correct. That is absolutely correct. That we have a lot of runways. What are we? We're up to eight now, I think. Do you need eight? I guess you need eight if you have them. I mean, who knows? Who knows? No, um, you have as many runways as Newark and JFK plus half of LaGuardia combined. And everyone knows that half of LaGuardia equals one quarter of a normal airport. That's true. That's the airport math. We're doing airport math today. Yeah, so that, that's always fun to watch. How are you, sir? Unchanged. Unchanged. It has been a very boring fortnight. I'll take it. I'll take what we can get these days. Yeah. Nothing's happened. Literally nothing has happened? Nothing has happened. Have, I think I you... left my apartment once. That's okay. Exciting. I was going to ask if you've left the house, maybe showered, eaten some food. I cannot confirm any of those details. Okay. Well, then this should be a fun podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Where do we begin? Well, we begin with an update on the Sriwijaya Air Flight 182 crash. Last time we talked, they had found the flight data recorder. They were searching for the cockpit voice recorder. That search is ongoing. They found parts of the cockpit voice recorder, but not the actual part of it that has the data on it, which seems that that could create some problems. Yeah, uh, this is not the first time this has happened as for some reason, the actual memory module, the part that contains all the data has a somewhat troubling, I guess, tendency to break away from the actual unit itself, which has the pinger that would help search and rescue teams actually locate the thing. So somewhere at the bottom of the sea in the mud and sediment down there is basically the equivalent of a USB stick that has all of the cockpit voice recordings on it. Yeah. I mean, if it's happened multiple times, that to me is A, troubling and B, a trend, I guess. If something that is one half of some of the most important recording devices on the planet is consistently not doing what it's supposed to do, maybe it's time for a redesign. Maybe it's well beyond time that both of these so-called black boxes just record everything. So there's some redundancy. We're not recording these things on tape anymore, and memory is basically so expensive that it doesn't even matter. So why have we not even considered just recording audio and data on both? And that seems so logical. I 
could not tell you why we have not done that because I honestly haven't been following this as closely, I guess, as some people as far as the actual CVR is concerned. But yeah, I mean, this, of course, brings up the ongoing conversation about why do we have – I mean, keep the black boxes obviously for redundancy, but why are we not streaming the data in the first place? But setting that aside for the moment, the search continues for the actual memory module of the cockpit voice recorder and they've not said anything publicly but have said that they're going to say something publicly at the beginning of February. That is in line with what historical crash investigations have told us in Indonesia, kind of the timeline. Some reporting previous to this from the Wall Street Journal and Reuters and Bloomberg, I believe, are pointing to investigators are looking at a possible auto throttle issue that the aircraft experienced, though we don't have anything confirmed as of yet. Hopefully, we'll know something more next week when we get an interim report from the Indonesian investigators. Yeah, don't really want to speculate what could have been a potential issue beyond just saying that is what's out there being reported now, and we'll see what the preliminary report has to say about that. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll have much more to talk about after that report comes out. It being a new administration in the US, we've got some new guidelines coming out for travel. So we had previously discussed in the last episode the impending imposition of a quarantine for international travel. And that came into play this week. So the first passengers coming into the US have had to go through that process now. The other possibility that's under discussion by the CDC is requiring a COVID test before domestic travel. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one, Jason. Oh boy, that's a can of worms. I'm not aware of any country that is requiring COVID testing for domestic flights, actually. Plenty, almost all for international arrivals in some degree or capacity. But for domestic flights, that would be possibly a world's first. I have mixed feelings on this. I think that if you have the means to travel right now, you should also have the means to get a COVID test and prove you are safe to fly. But at the same time, it's a logistical nightmare. I don't see this mattering that much at this point. Like the damage is done, whether if you're flying from New York to LA or whatever, I, I don't think that it really matters at this point because cases are so high. But just thinking about the logistics and infrastructure to require testing for domestic flights is kind of daunting. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at too. If they had said this in, I don't know, March, I think that would have been one thing or even April or May. But I mean, the, it's like said, yeah, <laughs> but at some point, you know, you're so far down the road where setting up the infrastructure and managing the testing protocol and then dealing with the fallout of positive tests possibly occurring where at an airport. I mean, how do you manage all of that? I just don't see that being kind of the area where focus should be at the moment. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with it. Obviously, on paper, it's a good idea. But in reality- I think we should be testing everybody all the time, twice a day. Oh, yeah. 
I think that we were incredibly, incredibly flat-footed in getting testing capacity together. I mean, setting anything else aside, I mean, just one of the litany of grievances in this whole thing is just not having the ability to test anybody basically at will. Like, you want a COVID test? Pick up a pack of gum, get a COVID test. It should be that easy. And we should have the capacity to test as many people as possible per day. It's not impossible to do that. Here in New York City, we have done that. And we've been doing that for months because shockingly, our city government appears to be actually competent for once in doing just this. The problem is proving it, having some sort of proof and demonstrating to the airline that you have had a test, it has been negative, and it is within so many hours. There are some cases where countries require you have a negative test within 10 days, which is just ridiculous. Some are 96 hours, some are 72 hours. Everywhere has different rules at this point, depending where you're going or you're transiting or you're coming from. There's an interesting initiative being pushed by IATA, which is the global airline policy, maybe not policy. Trade organization. Trade organization. There it is, the lobbying group. Then they've put together a proposal called Travel Pass, which would work to streamline this. Basically, you get a COVID test or even a vaccine from an authorized place and they upload your details to the cloud. And then that information is automatically transferred to the airline so you don't have to do anything. But the cart is before the horse on this one. The infrastructure isn't in place. So if I go to get a COVID test today or even a vaccine, I'm not getting any digital proof of that. I'm getting a piece of paper. And if I want to prove that to the airline, I have to show them said piece of paper. So if this travel pass initiative were in place six months ago, I think it would be very doable to require COVID testing before domestic flights. But without an infrastructure like that in place, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, to me, it seems like the model of college transcripts would be the way to do it. The results are automatically uploaded to wherever. And then you can say, okay, send them to an airline with COVID test at united.com. And you just email it away. And that would be done. I mean, it seems to me like that would be an easy way to go about it. Again, all of this would have been good to have set up nine months ago. Right. And part of IATA's messaging in this is there has been really no help from pretty much any government on this front. It's been an entirely industry-led initiative. And without government backing, it's just not going to work. Like New York City is not going to, at any point in the near future, integrate with IATA's Travel Pass app so I can get a negative COVID test to fly to LA. Like that's just not going to happen. It's not a priority with the limited resources they have. We'll see if they require it, but I really don't see it happening. The airlines are going to scream so loudly that it's just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, if there was a stand up of additional testing capability across the country, that would be one thing. And then at the end of that, okay, then here's what we're going to require. But that sets aside the fact that there are people driving just as easily. And what do you do then? Especially in the US, that's an issue. Elsewhere, it might not be as big of an issue, but in the US, it certainly is. For being fair, this would have to apply to all interstate travel. So it would apply to Amtrak, it would apply to Greyhound and Megabus. You, can, you really can't single out airlines on this. I forgot about Megabus. How could you forget about Megabus? I, I honestly- $1 fares allegedly from New York to DC. How could you not like that? How about that? So I guess our consensus right now is that ain't going to happen, but it would be great if it were possible to have it. 
Sure. If all the stars aligned nine months ago, it would be great to be doing this now. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, we can say so much about that. The, it would have been great to do nine months ago, 10 months ago, a year ago, really. But here we are. Let's do our bi-weekly Boeing update. Oh, okay. We're calling it that now. I forget what we're supposed to call it because we've called it so many things. We have, but we have a mix of good news and bad news for Boeing. You want to take yes. the good news? We'll take the good news. So today, in fact, before we recorded the podcast. So wow. thank you, Yasa and the UKCAA for being time zones in front of us. The European Union Aviation Safety Agency, which is the regulator for European countries, and the UK CAA, Civil Aviation Agency, has approved the 737 MAX for flight in those countries, which doesn't affect a whole lot of aircraft, but it lets them get up and running. And it also kind of gives Ryanair one of the largest order books of 737 MAX, the ability to start taking delivery of those planes, which should be interesting to see how quickly they start doing that. Yeah. And this was both EASA and the UK, I believe you said, right? Yes. Last month, it would have just been EASA and it would have carried over. But with the Brexit split done, UKCA had to issue their own approval, which they did a few hours after EASA took their action. So looking at current European operators, we've got Enterair, which is a leisure carrier, Icelandair, Lot, Norwegian, Smartwings, and TUI. And they've got some aircraft on European registries, and they are the only MAX operator with aircraft on the UK registry, which is why the UK actions are important here. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe we still have to see the aircraft unbanned from the individual country airspace within the EU. Like Germany still has to approve the aircraft since they went above and beyond EASA and outright banned it from its airspace, right? Yeah. So yes, they banned the aircraft from operating in the airspace, but that's as simple as withdrawing the note. There's no process there. Right. But that hasn't happened yet. I don't believe so, but one would expect that to come shortly, given how simple that is to do. And basically, Yasa saying, this is our approval process. It has been met. And now, here are the changes you need to make. The changes required by Yasa are very similar to the Canadian changes that go above and beyond the FAA that we talked about last time, but nothing hugely different. So there are no real surprises in any of the changes. Yasa deals with the circuit breaker issue. The one thing I was thinking about today is who makes those circuit breaker caps? Do you have to order those from Boeing? Is there a third-party circuit cap? Yeah, just 3D print them on your breaker. own. Is that an in-house thing? Does everybody get to make their own? I don't know, but I bet it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. How much does that colored plastic cap cost, do you think? If you have to ask. Yeah, that's true. That's very, very true. So that is the news today. As we talked about last episode, kind of in a future tense, but now we can talk about it in the present tense, Canada is now operating the 737 MAX. WestJet was the first to bring them back. 
their operating flights now. And then Air Canada is going to operate flights beginning next week, the first week of February. So that'll happen. I haven't heard anything about Sunwing though. Have you? No, I don't believe so. And I haven't, I don't believe I've seen any of its aircraft up and about on flight testing. Right now I see a bunch of Air Canada in the air, but yeah, I have not heard anything from Sunwing. Three Air Canada in the air right now, actually. There you go. Yeah, they've been pretty busy moving things around. They, I think more than any airline, has kept their fleet active during the entirety of the grounding, moving aircraft around because they were storing them in the US and bringing them back to Canada for maintenance and pilot currency, which was a very interesting thing to me rather than performing maintenance down in the US or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, Air Canada has three in the air right now, one Edmonton to Vancouver, another Toronto to Montreal, and a third Montreal to Halifax. So across the continent, more or less, uh, Air Canada is, they're not in service yet, but they're doing something. They're getting ready. Jason, I turn the Boeing update over to you for the not-so-great news. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of companies in the U.S. are reporting their fourth quarter 2020 earnings or lack of earnings report. <laughs> As we said <laughs> last time, it's earnings. Boeing's turn and oh, it was not good. I'm paraphrasing from East Texas's news leader, KLTV from the AP. <laughs> I expected it to be from Seattle, but no, okay. Boeing closed its worst ever year financially by losing $8.4 billion in the fourth quarter for a full year record loss of $11.94 billion. That's a lot of billion. They lost $11 billion. $11 billion. They did it. That Almost $12 billion. Oh. A big part of that came from an unexpected, at least on Wall Street, a pre-tax charge of $6.5 billion related to the 777X, actually. And there was a bit of news that came out on that, that Boeing confirmed that the first delivery of the 777X is now pegged for late 2023. And that almost certainly means the aircraft won't enter service with an airline, we don't know which airline, until 2024. And at this rate, maybe Emirates is first because it only very recently, a couple of weeks ago, announced that it would be taking its first 777X in 2023. Uh, so maybe Emirates is still first, maybe not. But regardless, you are not going to step foot on one until at least 2024, first quarter, most likely. And on top of that, it also announced that one of the various issues creating the delay, some of it is due to airlines simply not wanting an aircraft of this size right now and COVID response, ramping down production. But one interesting tidbit is that they are having to actually redesign an actuator on the wings, which is suspected to be related to the folding wingtips. As you may recall, the 777X has 11-foot-tall folding wingtips so on the ground, they basically retract so the aircraft can fit into existing gates. They extend and then they retract while they're on the ground. So apparently they've figured out some sort of issue with that system that they have to rework. So aircraft that have already rolled off the line will be modified and they'll stick with that moving forward with that new design. I don't know if we have any more details on that though. The most I got was that it was an actuator related to the folding wing design, but that was pretty vague as far as what it actually needs to be redesigned. So no, I, I do not know. And I don't think we have any more on that. I'm sure we'll get it, but we didn't get it today. A lot of the focus was on how much money they lost. 
They also did say a part of the reason for the delay includes an updated assessment of global certification requirements, which is interesting. It doesn't say much on its face, but it definitely would imply that regulators around the world are giving extra scrutiny to this aircraft after, I would say, the failed certification process of the MAX. Yeah. I mean, anything where you have to ground the plane and go back for nearly two years and do it mostly all over again, I would call that failed. Yeah. I don't think anyone can legitimately argue against that. Yeah. Yeah. We do also have some more information about production rates. The 787 is reduced to five aircraft per month and will be consolidated completely to South Carolina uh, just under two months from now. The 777 program now is down to two per month. The 76 is three per month, actually. So more than the 777, which is interesting. And the poor old 747 is down to one half of one aircraft per month. The 73 will see a gradual increase to 31 per month in early 2022 with further gradual increases to correspond with market demand. A total backlog right now of 4,000 commercial airplanes. And that backlog, we also got some news on that 787's quality issues that we've talked about previously where two of the body sections join. There have been some issues with the shimming and Boeing said two things about that. One, they're still working on establishing a permanent way to fix that issue that they hope to have in place soon. And then they need to go back and actually do all of that work. So we're not going to see any 787 deliveries this month. So not in January, February, possibly. But then once they get everything kind of straightened out, they'll be back to delivering that backlog of 787s. So there's a good collection of undelivered 787s sitting along with also a good collection of undelivered 737 MAX in Victorville. So that will start to dwindle hopefully soon. Yeah. Boeing's got a lot of aircraft to figure out how it wants to fix and when to deliver. Meanwhile, over in Europe, Airbus has also announced some details about its A320 production rate, which is being revised down quite a bit, not surprising to anyone. And the output of the 320 family of aircraft will go from 43 down to 40 in the third quarter and 45 in the last three months of 2021, obviously in response to the market environment, which elegantly put right now sucks. (laughs) Gestures widely. Looks at everything in the room. (laughs) I think all of these rates could best be described as, eh, maybe? Yeah. Come back, check again soon. Yeah, it's taking the magic eight ball of what is happening and shaking it and getting the uh, unsure. But, you know, revise your plan and do with it because, you know, producing an airplane's easy. You go up rate, you can come down rate, no big deal, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Especially with the 787 where you're sourcing parts globally. Fantastic. So that was our Boeing and Airbus update. Airbus making very few waves these days. Probably the best. I think the quieter, the better these days. I will take it. No news uh, is good news in 2021. <laughs> That's our tagline for the podcast for this year. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I will shoehorn a weird US stock market thing into the airline industry. And Jason will groan at why I'm doing this. Um, I'm preparing for it now. But first, a quick break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. It is now my distinct pleasure to take this unique opportunity to combine my love for making Jason roll his eyes at me and the aviation industry. Yeah, give it your best shot. I shall do it thusly. So last episode, we talked about how Norwegian's long haul network was no longer in existence. No longer a thing. It's not a thing. They have decided that they're going to refocus on their short haul network. They're going to go from an airline of over 100 aircraft down to an airline of 50 some odd aircraft, all single aisle 737s at this point, and refocus on their core markets. They asked for government help. The government said no, and that's how this plan came about. Last week, they came back to the Norwegian government with a new plan that we're going to ditch the long-haul stuff, we're going to refocus on the short-haul stuff, and these are our plans. And the Norwegian government said, we will help you financially if private investors help you first. They basically said that Norwegian needed to raise 4.5 billion kroner, so $529 million US from private investors, and then the Norwegian government would consider helping them financially as well, all contingent, of course, on the Norwegian parliament's approval. Here is where the numbers get fun. Right before we recorded, I learned that the Norwegian government owns 2.6% of GameStop, a stock that has recently been manipulated by an internet mob to rise over a thousand percent. Did we just save Norwegian? Is that what all this was about? That's what all this was about. So the GameStop stock was basically worthless. Hedge funds had been shorting the stock, which basically means they're betting on it to fall, and they will make money when the stock price falls. A very passionate and very angry group of individual investors got together and said, well, we don't like these hedge fund guys. And so they drove up the price of GameStop stock. The Norwegian government had purchased their shares of GameStop long before all of this. Also, why? That part I don't even have anywhere near half an answer to. So it turns out that if the Norwegian government sold right now, they would make about $570 million. You could buy a couple of Norwegians for that price. But what I'm saying is Norwegian was required to raise $529 million. So the Norwegian government could, in fact, sell their GameStop stock and push that into a Norwegian. Problem solved. I've just saved Norwegian. Uh, Stop the planet. I want to get off. (laughs) I don't even have any idea what's happening here, but I think it's a good plan. I have no response to that. You're telling me it's not a good plan? You're telling me that an investment into GameStop or Norwegian Air is probably not a good idea at the moment? I just want to know why a foreign government held a somewhat substantial stock in a running out of room to live game retailer. I, Huh. I mean, that truly is the question. And who knows, maybe it was part of a package deal. Maybe they also bought some Blockbuster stock. Radio Shack, I hear, is booming. Ooh, excellent. 
That one I don't have any ideas on. But I think I found a way to save Norwegian. I'm going to write a letter to the Norwegian government and see if they can get on board with my plan. They'll make you CFO. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry. That's going to be a problem. Sticking with Norway, we have a new Norwegian airline getting ready to start up. Just what we needed. Well, maybe. Is it? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it, okay, tell so me more. they are also focusing on short haul. Their name is Flyer, I hope. At least that's how I would pronounce it, looking at it, F-L-Y-R. But could also be Fleer. I don't know. But we'll go with Flyer because why not? So anyway, they're going to start up with some 737s, and they announced the middle of last year, and we may have mentioned it on an episode in passing, but they're actually getting ready to start up now. So it's entirely possible, given the buoyancy of the Norwegian market and the Scandinavian market kind of more generally, they'll be successful. That's entirely possible. They've got some industry experience behind them. This isn't WOW 2.0 where the woman with the dog food empire, I think it was, was trying to resurrect the airline. Uh, What a scam that was. Yeah. Nothing came of that, did it? No, because it was a scam. Okay. Fair enough. So anyway, these are folks who have worked in the industry and in the region. So Brayton's, SAS, Vitero, and I think folks from Norwegian are involved in all of this. And they seem pretty invested in making this work. I mean, you know, through operational experience. So I hope they do well, if nothing else, to see, be able to have a new airline started list against my airlines that ended list. Sure. It seems to have a a somewhat decent roster of characters. And we all know people in the airline industry hate leaving the airline industry. So if they want to stick around and start up a new airline in a region that's already oversaturated with airlines, go for it. See what happens. It'll be a breeze. (laughs) Oh, I see what you did there. Got it. I see what you did there. When are they going to start operations? Do we know? They have some aircraft, they some have 95s painted and ready to yes. go, but yes. I have not heard anything about airports or a start date they're, or fares or anything. They're Norfolk to Orlando Sanford route or whatever it's going to be. Sure. They could do uh, Newark to Newport News and be People Express version 3.0. Oh, man. That would be something. Sure. I don't think it'd be something good, but it would be something. So we go from Flyer to Flare, which is the Canadian startup airline. They've been around the for- best delivery in the world. Flare's livery, how to describe it? It's a mix between Panda and Type 4 de-icing fluid. I think something that comes to mind is like mint chocolate chip ice cream to me. There you go. That's one too. I would allow well, it. Like melted mint chocolate chip ice cream. Melted mint chocolate chip ice cream. That's less appetizing, I guess. Still good, but less appetizing. Yeah. In news that is not at all confusing, they have signed an agreement with 777 partners for 13737 MAX aircraft. Huh. So that is something- Soon. Like yeah. first quarter of this year, any week now. Well, it helps when there's a large volume of inventory. But where are they going to fly to? Places that are warm from places that are cold. Sure, but many of those places were in the US, I believe, for this particular airline, and that is not even legal right now to do. Well, so now that they have the MAX, they can fly farther and they can oh, bypass the US. No more Fort Lauderdale or Miami. No, go all the way down to Mexico. 
or there you go. elsewhere in the Caribbean because you can still go there from Canada. Yeah, so an interesting pickup. A few people noted that this information is not available anywhere on the Boeing website. I guess it really has nothing to do with Boeing. If the aircraft are being leased from a third party, not being purchased from Boeing, Boeing's got nothing to do with this. Sure, but they generally make announcements when a new airline picks one, even if it's not through Boeing. They're usually pretty pleased to make mention of the fact that a new airline has selected their aircraft. Yeah, I guess that is strange, isn't it? I will leave that as it is. Tell me about the acceleration of ANA's plans because we, we didn't really talk about this when they announced it. And this week they announced they're going to do it faster. So I feel like we should talk about it now. Any plan worth doing is worth doing faster. And ANA has determined right. that it is going to accelerate its plan to retire half of its Boeing 777 aircraft, which I believe is its entire fleet of domestic 777s. I think the numbers add up, but I don't think they've confirmed that. So half of those 777s will be retired and more long-haul flights will be operated by 787 aircraft as they'll have to kind of backfill the domestic fleets as they retire those 777s. So this was a plan originally announced October of last year, but is now being accelerated because Air travel is bad right now. So they have a lot of aircraft hanging around that they just don't need. So I guess the thing to note here is that the domestic 777 has higher density. Those are going away. The international 777s have a lower density, but still more capacity than the 787s. So basically, all of this is to say we're taking seats away from the airline. Right. And also some routes are being trimmed in frequency, but that's just through March or April of this year, I think. So like JFK here in New York, they're reducing from two daily flights to one, which is probably more than enough still. I mean, I guess it's good to have the cargo capacity at least. Yeah. If they're filling. I mean, that's what's keeping everything awake or alive. Awake and alive. We'll go with it. Sure. Sure, sure. So you sent me an article I think a week ago now it's come out and kind of reading through it went from bad to worse. And I would love for you to A, explain what's happening here. And then I want to get your thoughts because I just want to make sure that I'm not overreacting, underreacting. I'm not sure how to react to this just yet, but the IEEE spectrum, this article is put out by Mark Harris on the 21st of January dug into some FAA and NASA filings about GPS issues, or more specifically, the US military's spoofing and disruption of GPS. And for some background, GPS is a timing signal that comes from satellites in space, obviously, and it's a very, very weak signal. So it doesn't take much to interrupt or even spoof GPS signals. And it's pretty common for the US military, at least in the US, obviously, in the US airspace to put out notums that they're going to be doing something with GPS, that it will be unavailable for some amount of time in some specific place for some specific range. And it turns out that it is happening far more frequently and far more widespread than was previously thought. And the issues can be kind of dramatic, but thankfully, nothing terrible has happened just yet. And I think that's the takeaway from the article, that there have already been a number of near catastrophes where aircraft have lost GPS, or the GPS signal has drifted, or it's being spoofed even, and aircraft are 
not where the pilots are being told their aircraft are. The article goes into detail in saying there have been some 90 instances of reported GPS interference throughout the U.S. over the past eight years, but that there are probably more that go unreported. And some of these issues go as simple as pilots are trying to execute a GPS-assisted landing at an airport and suddenly the GPS signal cuts out, meaning they have to basically fall back on their training and do a manual landing on a different runway, which may be more difficult or there may be some sort of other issues with that runway. Maybe there's no ILS system or whatever, but there's basically a higher possibility of what it calls a controlled flight into terrain, CFIT, which is never good. There are also reported instances of almost a mid-air collision between two aircraft, one of which was commercial, because GPS jamming and one aircraft not being where it was supposed to, and the air traffic controller at the last possible minute informing the pilots of this situation and avoiding that incident. But also there are other cases where if the GPS signal is spoofed, this is especially happening apparently over Iranian airspace? Yeah, it's been... A consistent issue over Iranian airspace and a little bit in eastern Turkey. Yeah, where it's not a total disruption to GPS, but spoofing. So the system will tell you you are one place, but in actuality, you are maybe 10, 15, 20 miles off your course. And that could have potentially very negative impacts. So if your aircraft is suddenly in the airspace of the wrong country, that could be catastrophic if aircraft are straying into countries they are not supposed to be flying over. And this is something that is happening quite a lot and globally. And I'm not sure what to make of it. Like you said, for one question, why is the military doing this so often for a critical safety thing? And the usual response to this is GPS is a military system, a military application that civilians have access to. But so much of modern technology has become so heavily reliant on GPS, you may not know it, but pretty much everything we use technologically wise is dependent on GPS working, including at this point, air traffic. Yeah, I think there's a couple things here. One is that why is this happening? The military said, because we want to know what's going to happen in the event of a war. And an adversary says, we're going to try and deny the use of GPS, what's going to happen to us. So that's one of the reasons that they're doing all of this. Why they need to do it in these particular locations, I think that's a question that is less cut and dry. But the one thing I do want to note, especially with the Iranian situation and, and GPS interference there and things like that, pilots are trained for these types of occurrences. And especially pilots that are flying over eastern Turkey, flying over Iran, flying near Iran through Iraq, things like that, where these things are known to occur, when they happen, they're knowledgeable of the situation and there are ways to mitigate the interference or the denial of, of a signal. So it's not just bad things are absolutely going to happen if this occurs. No, it's annoying and it requires some mitigation, but the flight crews are trained for this type of thing. The issue, especially that the article addresses that we'll link to in the show notes, of course, is when this is happening in critical phases of flight, not just in crews where you look down and go, okay, we need to make some minor corrections or we need to look at a different instrument now instead of relying on GPS, that kind of thing. When this is happening as aircraft are landing or departing or in very busy airspace where there's a lot going on, then 
the risk becomes greater and the issues become much more pronounced. Yeah. It's also interesting. I've never really looked into this, but a lot of air traffic control is shifting over to ADSB surveillance and ADSB itself relies on GPS positioning. So it is possible that if GPS is being spoofed or is being disrupted entirely, ADSB will not work or will not give an accurate position, which in and of itself is kind of scary, isn't it? Well, ADSB automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, the B is less important here than the D, which is dependent, and it is dependent upon the timing and position from a global positioning system, whether it's GPS. There are other variants of GPS, the Russian and the Chinese versions. Yes. And the soon-to-be UK one, I, I think is- And the, European. And the European one, yes. What's it called? It's dependent upon a global position signal. It doesn't matter which one. So that's certainly something that as things move to the direction of air traffic control in the US next gen, in Europe- just their ADSB mandate as well, and moving that direction. That's certainly one of the issues. And again, there were ways to mitigate it. But in the moment, it becomes an issue. So we'll link to the article. would love to hear your thoughts. If anyone has some concrete examples or anything like that that they're willing to share, we would love to hear about that podcast at fr24.com if you've got any details or thoughts on this particular topic. We'll close out the show with a massive interruption to me enjoying a quiet Sunday last week. Every so often, we get a huge amount of traffic for a flight, and sometimes we know what's going on at the start, and you're like, okay, that one makes sense. And then other times, you're going, I have no idea why people are following this flight. Most of the time, it's, I have no idea what's going on. Well, just generally speaking, that's how I live my life most of the time. Oh, sure. No like, right now, the most watched flight is a DHL flight from Chicago to East Midland Airport, a 7-6 freighter. Why? 856 people watching this flight. I mean, that seems reasonable. To be perfectly honest, I bet it's people in the UK watching the relative lack of air traffic and then clicking around on things like that. This particular flight also departed the UK, flew from London to Istanbul, and I had no idea why until about halfway through the flight. Go on. It turns out that a football player was transferring from Arsenal to a team in Istanbul whose name I cannot pronounce after a week of trying. So I'm not even going to bother. We will put it in the show notes. But their fans were following this flight to the tune of a million people following the flight. And at one point, over 300,000 people at the same time were following this flight. Okay. Yes. Football fans are very very serious about the work they do. And I am certainly in awe of their ability to care about something that much and really commit to it. And I applaud their efforts. Yeah. Whatever works, whatever gets you clicking and looking at aircraft, why not? <laughs> it's always really funny during the transfer windows, you know, people message, oh, are you going to follow this? We don't have any information about this particular player. But if they do fly and they know, I'm sure somebody will sniff it out. There are subreddits dedicated to football transfer window transportation and good on them. Yeah. So that was an interesting Sunday afternoon. Whatever makes people happy. 
That is my business, good sir. This has been episode 103 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.